0: Please open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. You can find that in the Bibles provided on pages 178 and 179. As you know, at the beginning of most sermons preached here, we have a brief introduction and then usually the pastor will tell you his sermon points. And I'm just warning you that I'm not going to do that this morning. And that's because Joshua 2 is an amazing story. It's an amazing story of God working salvation. And I don't want to give you sermon points ahead of time because I don't want to spoil the story. Instead, I want us to walk through this story and let the story itself do its work on our hearts. I do want to make one thing clear, though. Even as I use that word story, it's a dangerous word because story is the word we give usually to things that are made up. But this is God's word. It's the true story story of God's work in Jericho over 3,000 years ago. So you might substitute the word account instead of story, but that's a little cumbersome to say. But with that out of the way, let's read just first one of this chapter, Joshua chapter two, as we get into what God is doing here. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Last week, we ended chapter 1 with preparations being made for all the people of Israel to cross over the Jordan, to pass over it, and enter the promised land. In obedience to God's command, Joshua went through the camp and he told his, his officers to get the people ready for a crossing of the Jordan that would happen three days later. Chapter 3 provides the natural next step to that command. The people cross the Jordan and they enter the promised land and they do so in a in a miraculous way that's kind of an echo of the Red Sea crossing. God's people cross through the Jordan River on dry ground even though the Jordan at that point was at flood stage. God stops up the waters. So in that sense Joshua chapter 2 doesn't really fit in the natural sequence that we might expect. There's nothing in Joshua chapter 1 telling Joshua to send some spies into the land. One might even wonder whether secretly sending spies goes well with God's command to be very strong and courageous. And then the way verse 1 ends raises even more concerns these secret spies Joshua sent end up staying in the house of a Canaanite prostitute. You could read Joshua chapter 2 verse 1 and think, well, here it comes. The Israelites are on the fast track to compromise with the Canaanites. The Canaanites were known for a kind of toxic brew of idolatry and sexual immorality. Their religious practices often involved cultic prostitution. So Rahab seems to be like the ultimate emblem of Canaanite perversion. And so with their first foray into the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership, it looks like the people of Israel are all mixed up with the worst of Canaanite culture. So let's read verses 2 through 7 to see what happens next. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men of God came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. I think it's hard not to find this scene a kind of funny scene. It's almost comic. These Israelite spies purported to come in secret, and yet their secret is immediately found out. Everybody in Jericho knows what they're up to. The king's spies know. Soon the king knows. Rahab seems to know exactly what's going on. And yet, though even, even though everybody in the city knew who they were, knew they had entered the city, knew where they went, they weren't captured. It's like a scene in a movie where the, the bad guys are sent on a wild goose chase, and the innkeeper saying, yeah, they went that way. If you go that way, you'll catch them, right? But in a movie, we often know that the, the writer and director are working behind the scenes, behind the, the, behind the story, kind of as an invisible hand guiding it. They introduce you to the good guys and bad guys in a way that makes you root for the good guys. And even if they put the good guys in a bad situation, you know they're not going to be killed in Act 1, right? You kind of know how the story works. So just for example, even if the hero's futuristic jet explodes going Mach 10, you know he's not going to die, all right? Well, the book of Joshua is not a movie, but there does seem to be this invisible power at work here to accomplish a purpose. On the one hand, God does allow his spies to be discovered. Their cover's blown. Is this God's way of rebuking this clever plan to have secret spies? On the other hand, God prevents the watchers or the forces of Jericho from capturing the spies. It seems like they had multiple opportunities, right? They they could have caught them at the gate. They could have stopped them on the way to Rahab's house. They could have searched Rahab's house, but they don't. They fail to capture them. It reminds us of what God just promised Joshua in chapter 1, verse 6. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord's name is not mentioned in these verses, but his fingerprints are all over the story. We see that the the question mark of chapter 1 perhaps was intentional. They're at this house of the Canaanite prostitute, but God's using this woman to hide his spies from the Jerichoites. This is just another way of reinforcing the fact that God is the main actor in this story that Joshua tells us. Since God has allowed the spies to come to Jericho and have their cover blown, we see then that God is acting and the people in the story are responding to God's action. So we see the king of Jericho and his watchmen, they respond to God's action in a way that's predictable for those who are God's enemies. They try to capture the spies. Their, their goal is to thwart what Israel is doing. They know that Israel's on the border of Canaan. As we already know, everybody's heard of what God has done to the kings of uh, Og and um, the other one that starts with an S, Sihon and Og. They've heard the story, they know God's people are mounting, and so they, they want to stop what's about to happen. When the presence of God is made known to them, they react the way that enemies do. But then that brings us to Rahab. Rahab has heard of what's going on. And when she sees God's spies, she acts to protect the spies. But of course, she does it in a very problematic way. She lies. She doesn't just lie once. She kind of lies in every possible way, right? I knew I don't know where they're from. I don't know where they went. Go that way, you'll catch them. They're just lie upon lie upon lie. Now Christians have, I think as long as there have been Christians and even before there were Christians and, and, and the Jewish people, have tried to figure out what to make of all these lies. It certainly seems like the Lord works through them to protect his spies, but does that mean the Lord approves of them? Can we deduce that some lies are good lies if they're done for the right reasons? Well, I'm going to leave it to you to try to figure out a theology of espionage and spycraft. If you're interested in that question, a good thing to look up is Albert Moeller's thinking in public interview with James Olson, who was the former CIA chief of counterintelligence. He's also a professing Christian, and he's been a professor at Texas A&M's Bush Center for 20 years. And it's an interesting interview. So if you want that that link, email me and I'll send it to you. But what we see if we look at scripture is nothing in terms of commentary upon Rahab's behavior. So God does not explicitly commend her for her lies, nor does he explicitly condemn her sinful activities. And to be clear, there was a lot about Rahab that could be condemned. So what we see here is that Rahab's Rahab's activities are just uncommented upon. But we also don't see anything saying that because of these sins, she's beyond the reach of... Of grace or salvation. And that leads us to the most important thing that these lies reveal. The lies Rahab tells to the king's men are the first signs that Rahab is severing ties with her own countrymen. In Calvin's commentary on this chapter, before he addresses the problem of Rahab's lying, he addresses another big ethical problem with Rahab. She was a traitor. She wasn't just lying. She was turning her back on her own neighbors and her own fellow citizens of Jericho. She was acting in such a way that was more likely to ensure their destruction. Now, normally, we don't celebrate traitors any more than liars. But in the context of what's happening in the book of Joshua, we should be able to see Rahab's actions in a different light. See, what's happening here in Joshua it's not the normal account of one people group conquering or invading another. So it's not like what we might see what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now, or or other examples of, of one nation state invading another. No, this is the account of God's saving work for his people and his divine judgment on the sins of the Canaanites. If you remember back to Genesis 15, when God tells Abraham that his people will be sojourners in another land for 400 years, he tells them that that will happen because the iniquities of the Amorites are not yet complete. Canaan is under judgment, and God is bringing that judgment through his chosen people. He's giving Canaan as a gift to his redeemed people. So this is a a spiritual theological thing that's happening with God's people entering the land. And Rahab's lies to the king of Jericho are a sign that her allegiance has changed. She's renouncing Jericho and choosing Israel, choosing God's people. And so in a strange way, Rahab's lies are the beginnings of her repentance. Repentance is a word that means turning away. And here in her lies to the king of Jericho, Rahab is turning away, turning her back on the ways of Canaan. We might say it's, it's kind of a faltering repentance. It's repentance that is itself stained by sin. But as imperfect as it is and stained as it is, it's genuine repentance. It's a genuine break with the ways of Canaan. Canaan the ways of sin and death. In our church's statement of faith, the article on repentance says that repentance involves being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness. Rahab's drastic behavior in hiding the spies and lying to the king's men is a sign that she has a sense of her guilt, danger, and helplessness. She knows that she's in danger of facing God's wrath. She knows that she's helpless to escape it because she's inside those walls of Jericho. And she's willing to go to great lengths to incur great risks to preserve these spies who were her only hope of escape out of sinful Jericho. So we can rightly condemn her lies, but we can't condemn the urgency she felt in her situation. In that sense, she was exactly right to act drastically. She understood the seriousness of her situation. Are you convinced of the, the guilt and danger and helplessness that you have in the face of sin? Do you think that you can tame sin? Do you think you can indulge in the ways of sin the ways of the world, and then sort of put them back in their place and walk away. I think we're all tempted with that kind of pride. We're tempted to think that sin is kind of like a a seedy neighborhood we visit once in a while and then return home. But the more accurate picture, the scriptural image, is to think of sin as a prison, like that walled city of Jericho with the gate shut. On our own, we can't escape sin's enslaving power. It blinds us. It deceives us. It blinds us the way that the king of Jericho was blinded to the spy's true location. We get habituated to our sin and we grow more and more insensitive to our sin. And that's why repentance is is supposed to be a drastic break. The cutting off of the offending member. Rahab shows us that. Rahab shows us that to repent is to commit commit an honorable treason. A treason against the ways of sin and death. Have you turned your back on sin like Rahab did? Have you repented? The next scene in the story is a pivotal one. We find a long speech of Rahab in verses 8 through 14. Let me just stop and say a good way to understand the structure and main point of an Old Testament narrative, so like one of these history books we're in, is to pay attention to the significant speeches. So, so far in our narrative, we've had Joshua speaking to the spies. We've had the men of Jericho reporting to the king and then the king sending word to Rahab. Those are two speeches. Then we have Rahab's speech full of lies to the king's men. And now we have a long speech of Rahab to the Hebrew spies. And in this speech, Rahab confesses her faith in what she's heard about God, and she asks the spies to swear that they'll save her and her family from death. Let's read verses eight through 14. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save a my father and mother, my brother and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. As we've seen, this story has already been full of surprises, but nothing is more surprising than this. This sinful woman of Jericho professes her faith in Israel's God. She's become convinced that life and salvation are found in this God, the God who saves his people. Notice twice in this passage, she refers to what we heard. The Canaanites had heard about God's mighty saving work in the Red Sea. They had heard about what God did to his enemies. The great armies of Pharaoh drowned in the heart of the sea. As I said during our Old Testament reading, I wonder if somehow the song that Moses sang somehow made its way all the way to Canaan. Rahab quotes or seems to paraphrase from it when she says in verse 8, all the inhabitants of the land will melt away before you. That's exactly what God said would happen. He said kind of even as he was doing this mighty act, the kings of Edom and Canaan, their hearts were melting as they heard of what God was doing for his people. She says that Israel devoted them to destruction in future weeks, we're going to see that phrase "devoted to destruction" many more times, and it comes from a Hebrew word that has to do with something being set aside as holy to the Lord. I want to draw your attention to that word just because it it reminds us that what Ahab, what Rahab is doing in her confession, is richly theological. So this is not just kind of a, a naked confession of someone who wants to to escape death and judgment the confession of someone who's come to believe in God's authority and grace by using that phrase devoted to destruction she's she's siding with God against God's enemies and saying you devoted them to destruction you you devoted them to destruction because they had offended the holy God implied there is and it was right to do so So Rahab has come to believe in God's authority and grace. And I want to drill down on those two ideas, authority and grace, because I think they help us understand what true faith is. So first, let's consider her confession of God's authority. We see this in her confession when it reaches its crescendo in verse 11. It says, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God... He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Remember that Rahab's world is the world of the the village deity. Each little clan or tribe would have had its own gods and its own shrines and its own religious rituals. But here she recognizes Israel's God as the God who is God of heaven and earth. So he's not merely the God of the sea who could part the sea or the God of the the area across the Jordan where he conquered those kings, Sihon and Og. He's the God over all things and all places. Heaven above and earth beneath. This is a, a universal term. The God who is everywhere, the God of everything, the God over all. He has authority over all people. He has authority over life and death. He has authority as a judge. So when she testifies again that the hearts of the people melted away before God's power, she's testifying to the fact that they understood themselves to be on the wrong side of God. But when it came to the the enemy friend distinction, they knew they were enemies. Again, some of these enemies of God reacted and said, well, we're going to try to thwart what God is doing but Rahab here knows that she's an enemy of God. She knows that she should be devoted to destruction, but she's, she's on the verge of asking for deliverance from that destruction. But she's beginning where all true repentance begins, confessing that she is the proper object of God's righteous judgment. So we see that Rahab recognizes God's authority in kind of a general overarching sense, the universal God, God of heaven and earth, and in a specific sense. Israel's God is the God who she will face as judge. Israel's God is her creator and her judge. That's a crucial starting point for saving faith. It's true today as it was for Rahab. Well, again, we don't have the same village deities that Rahab had in Jericho, but we do naturally reject God's authority and chase after our own gods. One way to characterize our gods is that we worship our own freedom and our own choices. At root, our, our th- the thing we are devoted to is our own authority. If you want to know what the creed of this religion is, all you have to do is listen to Queen Elsa from the movie Frozen. She says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. And then she channels Martin Luther, and she says, here I stand, and here I'll stay. The cold never bothered me anyway. Sort of like, who cares about the consequences? I'll live my way. And the people in Arendelle can freeze. Apart from God's grace, we're all much more like Queen Elsa of Arendelle than Rahab of Jericho. We've cast off the bonds of God's God's authority so that we can create our own reality. And we reject the idea that we will ever have to answer to God as our judge. The basic first step of faith for many of us then is to admit that we are not creators of our own reality Amen. It's to repent of the ways we said no rules for me and one of the basic things we have to do when we tell the gospel to our, our friends and neighbors today is to help them see that they have been created by God and they are under God's authority and he is their judge. Like Rahab, we all need to come to the point of seeing God as our maker and our judge. He has authority over us, and we will answer to him for everything that we have done and will do. We have to recognize that apart from his grace, we deserve his judgment, and we will all face him. You could say the most basic question that the gospel asks of all of us is, do you reject or embrace God's authority over you? Do you understand yourself to be a creature made by God and under his authority or not? By God's grace, Rahab had heard the news about God's powerful saving work and she'd come to confess the truth about him. That's where saving faith begins, but it's not where it ends. Rahab also shows that she believes that God is a gracious God. After her confession of faith, Rahab makes a request of the spies. She asks them to swear an oath to her. And the crux of the oath is there in verse 13, that you will save alive my father and my brother and my sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Save us and deliver us. She's looking for salvation. But again, it's much more than just sort of bare escape from danger. She understands that this request for salvation is is rooted in God's grace. And we see that in the repetition of this phrase, deal kindly. We see it twice in verse 12 and then again in verse 14 and what the spies say back to her. She asks them to deal kindly with her. This is a word, deal kindly, that translates a Hebrew word, that is often described as God's grace or his surprising, gracious love. And the chief example where we see this in the Old Testament, really one of the the greatest passages in the Old Testament, is Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Some have called it the riddle of the Old Testament, and it'll be familiar to you. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression in sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So when you hear that word, or that phrase, steadfast love, the Lord is abounding in steadfast love in Exodus 34, 6, you're hearing the same word that Rahab says, deal kindly, She's looking for that steadfast love from God's people. She asks the Lord's spies for grace. She's already confessed that her heart melted at the news of God's power and judgment. When it comes to God's grace and wrath, she knows, again, she deserves to be treated with wrath. But she asks for the grace of deliverance and life. And then when the spies reply to Ahab, they say, we will deal kindly and faithfully to you. They're using that same pair of words, but now they've added steadfast love and faithfulness, grace and truth. They're speaking here as God's representatives, promising God's forgiveness and faithfulness to this Canaanite woman. It's a really remarkable thing. And we may wonder, like, aren't they kind of out over their skis here in doing this? Do they have any right to do this? But as the story unfolds into Joshua chapter 6, we see that Rahab is indeed saved and included as part of God's people. And the testimony of the New Testament is that she had saving faith. She received God's great steadfast love and faithfulness by faith in him. Rahab becomes like one of God's people. She becomes a recipient of his covenant love. This salvation of Rahab is one of the most encouraging things we see in the scriptures. I mean, the movement of Joshua, the book of Joshua, it's a movement of conquest. It's a movement of God devoting to destruction those who would oppose him. Just as he's already done to those peoples on the other side of the Jordan. But here we see God's first move in Joshua is not a conquest, but a conversion God's first work here is a saving, rescuing work. Rahab of Jericho comes to believe in the authority and grace of God, and she's saved by him. The amazing news of the Rahab story is that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. As we read through the whole of Scripture, we find that the grace Rahab received is a grace that's available to everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation. Everyone who repents and believes in Jesus Christ can receive the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. It's one of the strange things about the Old Testament and stories of Rahab that her salvation is ultimately rooted in something that would happen later. Because it's through Christ, and only through Christ, that enemies of God can become children of God. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that people can be saved. It's through Jesus' death that God's wrath is satisfied. So you think about those two verses from Exodus that we read earlier and and call them the great riddle of the Old Testament, that God is presented here as gracious and merciful and yet does not leave the guilty unpunished. That riddle is only solved in Jesus, who is punished so that sinners can be forgiven. Jesus bore the curse of sins so that people who deserve God's wrath can receive forgiveness of sins. So in Christ's work, we see how the authority of God and the grace of God are reconciled. Jesus lived perfectly under God's authority. He never rebelled. He never broke God's law. And yet he was crucified as a lawbreaker. When we come to faith in Christ like Rahab, we get to confess Our faith in God's good authority, even as we recognize ourselves as rule breakers, we can confess God's good authority and say, Jesus succeeded where I failed and Jesus took my punishment. The grace of God can be ours by faith in Christ. He died for sinners. He died and rose again to give sinners like us access to the grace and faithfulness of God. So Rahab's example shows us the way out of sin's bondage. Turn your back on the ways of sin and death and come to Christ. Trust in the grace that comes through Christ's death and resurrection. And Rahab also shows us that God does not require perfect repentance or perfect faith. Right? Rahab's repentance was imperfect. It was full of lies. But her faith was in God. It's not the perfection of our faith or repentance that saves us. Our perfect Savior saves us. Like Rahab, you can come to know the love of God and his faithfulness if you trust in Christ. Rahab's confession and the spy's response is really the high point of this story, but there's still a big question mark. These spies are imprisoned in the walls of Jericho. They're in Rahab's house. The gate is shut. No one's getting out through the normal route. So let's pick up the story and read in verse 15. Then she let them down by rope, by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we have come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The way this story unfolds is a little bit confusing. A literal reading, if we think all these events are strictly chronological, would have her letting down the spies and then I guess they're standing on the ground and having this long dialogue. It's probably more likely that verse 15 is kind of a a heading that sort of summarizes everything that follows. But there's a couple of things that we want to see from this part of the story. The first is that the spies dictate the terms of the oath. So again, we're talking about these big speeches. The main speech here is the spies to Rahab laying out the terms. And for Rahab and her family to be saved, they lay out two basic terms. They have to do something and then not do something. When Israel comes to Jericho, the thing they have to do is they ought to all be in the house that's marked by the scarlet cord. And the thing they have to not do is tell the business of the spies. Do not tell this business of ours. That's repeated twice here. In other words, to be saved, Rahab must not betray her new loyalty to God and his people. She must remain committed to God and not try to thwart the judgment he's bringing on Jericho. So she can't make this promise and then go run to the king of Jericho and tell him everything that's happening. We see these terms of the oath, but we also get a hint at Rahab's faithfulness to keep up her end of the bargain. She tells the spies how to avoid detection and capture, which way to go and how long to stay. And we see that she ties this scarlet rope in her window. It sounds like she's getting ahead of herself. You know, they're not there yet, but she goes ahead and she ties the scarlet cord. What we see here is that Rahab appears to have the good works that spring from saving faith. One way to describe verses 15 through 21 is to say that this is what the authority and grace of God look like in a believer's life. There's obedience that flows from faith. A believer's life should be marked by continuing devotion to God and his people, which is what Rahab exhibits. But I wonder how that strikes us, to hear these commands, these terms of the covenant. The spies are really direct here, right, about the the consequences if Rahab breaks the terms of the oath, that, that they're no longer responsible, Your blood's on your own head if you tell this business of ours, or if you're not in the house that's marked by the scarlet cord. How does that strike you? I think it helps us again to look at things the other way around. Look at the blessings God promises if they remain loyal and obedient. God's ways, the ways dictated by the spies, would lead to blessing and life for Rahab and her family. You see, the obedience that God requires is not burdensome. It's consistent with God's gracious and faithful character. I mean, all that he's asking them to do is just stay in the house and wait for him. And don't tell of this business to the Jerichoites. This is a good description of the life of obedience for a believer. We obediently wait for God. We live our lives as a response to his grace and faithfulness. And this obedience leads to life. What we see here is that the spies were not being harsh. They were being lovingly clear. Is that how you understand God's commands? Do you receive God's commands as his loving clarity to you? You know, as we're thinking about movies earlier, it's not hard to imagine kind of this movie being written in kind of a worldly way. The story would be similar in that Rahab is still the hero, despite being an outcast. But she doesn't have to do any changing. It's the religious people that have to change. They have to to repent of their stodgy ways and have to come to accept this sinful woman for who she is and, and see her good heart. Well, now it's true that God's people often do need to repent. Hopefully, by God's grace, we're all repenters here. We could imagine a situation in which these Israelite spies lecture Rahab about her way of life and her lying. Their message could have been, God wants nothing to do with you because you're a terrible sinner and you're a a dirty person. We've heard similar things come out of the mouths of Christians before. But It's important that we know that's not the gospel. The gospel is not, you're dirty, so stay away from God. The gospel is not, you have to clean yourself up and be holy, and then we'll see if God accepts you or not. If you've gotten that message from Christians, that the gospel has to do with your works, then then we're very sorry. That's not the gospel. But I hope that you can see the difference between those false gospels and the true gospel that's presented here. What we see here is that God receives Rahab despite her sin, despite her imperfect repentance. He receives her faith. And then God calls her to loyalty after her faith. Obedience follows faith. And obedience is the fruit of God's grace. Again, in that way, the spies are loving Rahab by telling her the terms of the oath. God's commands are loving. God's call to obey him is a loving call. And I hope that you can see that. Again, we live in a world where any command, any authority is, is seen as abusive, but that's not what we see here. God's command is life giving. The command is not, though, clean yourself, clean yourself up so God will save you. This is a call to those who are saved to enjoy fullness of life in God's company. This is how we should understand all of God's commands. Whether we're talking about God's commands or how we use our money or our sexuality or our time, all of God's commands for us are good. For those who've been saved by God, God's law is good. His word is the word of life. So do you respond to God's commands in this way? Do you respond to God's commands as if they are gifts of his love or as if they are harsh and oppressive? Rahab shows that she was faithful to God and God's people because God had been faithful and gracious to her. Is your response like Rahab's? The final paragraph of this passage shows that the spies returned safely to Joshua. God had preserved them Their foray into Canaan began with these big question marks, but God preserved them in miraculous and unexpected ways. Let's read verses 22 through 24. They, speaking of the spies, departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. So they survived their encounter with the worst of Canaanite culture, and they survived with their faith intact. They didn't compromise with Canaanite immorality. And they're full of joy and faith because the Lord is working for them. The Lord miraculously protects them. Even though they were kind of keystone cop spies, right? They immediately are detected. God saves them. He leads them to this woman who has somehow come to hear of God's ways and is ready to believe. And they pronounce that the hearts of the people melt away before them. Now, for the most part, again, we know that This heart of the people melting is because of God's fighting for his people. It's it's the form of conquest. It will mean God destroying his enemies, bringing judgment against them. But the story of Rahab shows us another kind of melting, doesn't it? The grace of God can reach to the darkest places and change the hardest hearts. The confidence of the spies is something that we today as God's people can have. God will accomplish his purpose. Now we know that for many who hear it, God's word, when it comes, is a word of judgment. They reject God's word. And perhaps on the final day, God will will use a word you've spoken and say, you heard it. You're condemned. But there are Rahabs in the world who will hear of God's power and grace and repent and believe. Such were some of us, right? Now, we don't have a promise that these spies had of a, some sort of parcel of land that's ours that we're going to conquer. But we do have a confidence and an Ephesians 1 kind of confidence. Confidence that God redeems people through the blood of Christ. Confidence that in Christ, God forgives sins and he lavishes his grace on his people Confidence that God has a plan to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth, to unite all things in Christ. We preach the gospel with the confidence that through God, through Christ, God saves sinners. Sinners like Rahab and sinners like us. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing this story is. A blessing of salvation to those who seem furthest away from you. Father, we also were once far away, and you have brought us near by the blood of Christ. We pray that you will help us who who know you to rejoice in the gospel of the great forgiveness, of the great love and faithfulness you've shown to us through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would help us to be people full of gospel confidence. That we will know Jesus, our great resurrected and ascended and seated king and high priest. And we will proclaim his word and we will see people come to faith. Regardless of what results we see, Father, help us to be faithful and full of confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.